Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. If you would, folks, please turn. Um, well, you do Matthew 18, or yeah, Matthew 18 and Daniel 9. Um, we won't be in Matthew 18 for long. You might have, a, uh, might have a marker in Daniel 9 left from last week. That will be helpful as we, uh, as we move further on. As we begin talking again about the coming of Christ and, uh, you know, the order of events surrounding the end times, you know, so we might be tempted to wonder, you know, is this really that important? And uh, is, is this discussion we're having, you know, merely academic? Is it just about knowing stuff to know stuff? Or is there something practical and useful uh, in this for God's kingdom? And I would propose that in actuality, our professing with confidence the unfolding of the end times, and the return of Jesus Christ is critical to evangelism. Uh, I am stunned. No, I'm really not. I am I'm interested by the number of times I have heard it asserted by Christians that nobody really knows how the return of Christ is going to unfold. You ever heard somebody say that? And nobody really knows how this is all going to work out in the end. And, and how do you think such a lack of confidence falls on the ears of unbelievers we are witnessing to? Um, they might say, so you profess to be a Christian, and uh, you don't even know how all this is going to wash out in the end. But the Bible is actually written in such a way that I believe we can know how the end of this age unfolds. The Apostle Paul, in fact, proposes through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that we really should know. Yet before we return to end events described in 2nd Thessalonians in chapter 2 next week, um, I have one more topic that needs to be discussed. I've titled today's message the 77s of Daniel. You have probably heard, heard them referred to as the, the 70 weeks of Daniel chapter 9. That, that, that's okay. That's okay. Um, but the 77s would be a literal translation. Sevens meaning units of seven. They, they are described by many as weeks, and in many translations of the Bible, the word weeks is there, but... Uh, Seventy-sevens would be more literal. And last Sunday we heard the angel Gabriel tell Daniel, Seventy-sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to anoint the most holy place. And today's message will build upon the strong covenant that we discussed last Sunday. 
This reference to 77s and these, these five promised criteria of the 77s offered by Gabriel, which could be summarized as complete atonement or, or everlasting righteousness, forgiveness with perfection, these criteria are very important, very important, um, very significant. If you were in my adult Sunday school class last fall that was titled The Seven Churches of Revelation, uh, you might remember that one Sunday I devoted an entire lesson to the symbolism inherent to the number seven throughout Scripture. And we learned its significance is remarkable and, and obvious. The number seven first appears in Genesis 1 in the creation week, the seven days of creation. Uh, there God rested on the seventh day, which signified completion, perfection, and consequently rest because it was finished. Throughout the church age, Christians have always acknowledged that seven is especially symbolic of completeness and perfection. The Christian website gotquestions.org, you might be familiar with it, makes this following observation, quote, thus right at the start of the Bible, the number seven is identified with something being finished or complete. From then on, that association continues, as seven is often found in contexts involving completeness or divine perfection. So we see the command for animals to be at least seven days old before being used for sacrifice. The command for leprous Naaman to bathe in the Jordan River seven times to effect complete cleansing. And gotquestions.org writes, and the command for Joshua to march around Jericho for seven days and on the seventh day to make seven circuits and for seven priests to blow seven trumpets outside the walls. In these instances, they conclude, seven signifies a completion of some kind. A divine mandate is fulfilled, unquote. Notice how seven marks the completion of of creation, the fulfillment of the creation week. Uh, seven achieved complete cleansing for Naaman. As I stated last Sunday, likewise, the, the 70th seven of Daniel satisfi satisfies the objective of the previous 69 sevens, or the previous 69 weeks. Therefore, the 70th seven does not introduce something completely foreign and contrary to God's promise to Daniel of everlasting righteousness. As the quote from gotquestions.org stated, seven also uh, signifies divine perfection. Jesus pointed to the perfection in himself using the sevenfold I am statements in the Gospel of John. This is a phenomenon that theologians study and they're very impressed with. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life, etc. And Jesus pointed to the perfect divinity within, within himself 
through announcing to Israel, I am seven times. The number's usage is especially prominent in Revelation where it appears in that one book well over 50 times. Whereas the number eight in Revelation is referenced only twice. In the Apocalypse of John, 12 or multiples of 12 are also important. Uh, they, they are indicative of a very large quantity or large dimension, so we find multiples of 12 times 12 times 12, or 144, as you know. Um, and being apocalyptic literature, much of Revelation is inherently symbolic. There are seven spirits and seven lampstands of seven churches, seven seals, seven angels, seven trumpets. The seven bulls of wrath in Revelation chapter 16 signify the full wrath of God poured out upon the whole earth in final judgment. The number appears over 700 times in the Bible. Yet beware. Beware of always reading symbolism into it. There are appearances of the number seven that simply mean seven. But I hope you can see why Christians have always embraced the number seven to symbolize completeness and perfection. That numeric association is, is very prominent and it cannot just be simply dismissed. Um, Consequently, as we analyze the number seven, as we look at it in different contexts, Christians aren't imposing our own you know, kind of made-up mystical meaning. Rather, we merely acknowledge that the usage and the repetition of the number seven in Scripture, it inherently possesses meaning. It can mean, imply, uh, it can imply divine perfection. It often symbolizes something finished or a divine mandate being fulfilled. Uh, cleansing, as we saw with Naaman, uh, it indicates mission complete. Mission complete. Therefore, that completion can also suggest that it is time to now rest. With all of this in the back of our minds, remember how scripture, our, our scripture reading from Matthew chapter 5 invited you know, Jesus' followers. Forgive perfectly, we are told by Jesus. Don't seek vengeance, don't sue, don't slap, but rather love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You know, Jesus suggests, you know, Act like you are children of your Father in heaven. Look like Him. And offering complete forgiveness is certainly a prominent characteristic of God our Father. This is why Jesus finished that discourse on loving enemies with this command. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Even... Our forgiveness of our enemies is to be perfect. Jesus ultimately shows us exactly what perfect forgiveness looks like on the day that he made an end to sin and atonement for our iniquities on the cross. Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. How much more perfect could forgiveness be? There is no higher display of forgiveness than Christ at Calvary. His substitution at the cross is, it's perfect. And he said that it is finished. It's complete. Complete forgiveness is the divine mandate. And God's threshold for us to give, whether we reach it consistently or not, nonetheless remains the same. Be perfect as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. That's the threshold of forgiveness. Jesus on the cross then remains our divine example for perfectly loving our enemies, perfectly forgiving our neighbor. How are we doing? This is the part where we are going to hand around microphones. People could. The fallen creation is corrupt. Living in this world can often be exceedingly painful. Sometimes forgiveness to us, it just appears elusive. Could never happen. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus is so unique and special. He showed us that in him, in him perfect forgiveness is possible. And though Christians aren't always successful at practicing it, complete forgiveness always remains our divine objective. Be like Jesus. Matthew chapter 18 is a familiar text to most of us because it, it contains the clearest treatment on practicing church discipline, everybody's favorite topic. Jesus' introduction states in verse 15, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. We don't have time today to treat uh, the entire topic of church discipline, uh, but we must recognize that passage provides steps to restoring a wayward sinner to fellowship. You've probably heard it said, the goal of church discipline is always forgiveness and complete restoration. That, that is the goal. That's not always the result, but complete forgiveness and restoration remains our goal. It is during this discourse when the Apostle Peter asks, yeah, but... Forgiveness has its limits, right? And, you know, at what point have we reached that threshold of divine forgiveness? That's not exactly what Peter said. Here's what Peter said. In verse 21, his words were, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? The philosophy of the Jewish leaders at that time is well documented in ancient writing. Uh, the Jewish leaders said three times. Three times, that's enough. Uh, so Peter probably figured he was being charitable. Probably thought forgiveness might be complete enough. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times 7. The threshold for forgiveness is 70 sevens. That is divine perfection. Remember, in Matthew 5, when it comes to forgiving our enemies, Jesus stated, 
be perfect as your father is perfect. That is the threshold. If you have a MacArthur Study Bible, which I think most of us probably do or have access to one, uh, his note at Matthew 18 and verse 21 says that this number simply indicates innumerable times. That is accurate. Unfortunately, John MacArthur doesn't also have a note there that says also reference Daniel 9. I'll tell you why he probably doesn't put that note in um, later on. The Bible knowledge commentary that comes out of Dallas Seminary agrees by stating, quote, Jesus meant that no limits should be set. The passage confirms 77s is the divine threshold of perfect forgiveness. Does anyone who was present for last Sunday's message have any idea where Jesus might have come up with this number? 77s. Pull it out of the sky, just kind of make it up on the fly, first thing that came out of his mouth. Now that's Peter. Or does it sound eerily similar to God's answer to Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 as Jerusalem and the temple sat desolate? You remember Daniel's prayer from last week? In Daniel 9 and verse 17, Daniel prays, quote, For your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. Uh, for we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own. But on account of your great compassion, O Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. That's Daniel's request. Lord, step in and do something. <laughs> and God's response to Daniel through the angel Gabriel is this in verse 24. Seventy-sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to anoint the most holy place. The 77s of Daniel signify what? Complete forgiveness. 77s is the capstone of divine forgiveness. That's the threshold. And this forgiveness is appropriated how? Well, it's through the Messiah being cut off and by him ratifying a strong new covenant with the many through his blood at the cross. And the new covenant revealed by Jeremiah, as we studied last week, served as God's answer to Daniel's prayer. That was my lesson last Sunday. Uh, I will ask this question again for those who may have missed last week. Were 69 weeks decreed to make atonement for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and then a 70th week reserved for, for some completely contrary evil activity by a wicked end times Antichrist? Not hardly. Not hardly. The cumulative total of the 77s defines complete 
forgiveness as declared to Peter by Jesus. That is complete forgiveness, not 69. The 70th seven or the 70th week of Daniel as it's referred, it's not a futuristic period where an antichrist will deceive Israel with a flimsy and phony covenant. The 70th seven represents the period during which Christ offers complete forgiveness through his blood. The 70th seven is Christ supplying everlasting righteousness through the new covenant. And this together becomes the answer to Daniel's prayer. In verse 26, Daniel's told, uh, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. If you need assistance with the timeline, uh, speak to me. I'd be glad to, to just help you uh, clarify if that was confusing to you last week. But in summary, let me just summarize. The revelation to Daniel indicates that between the time of the king's decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and the time when Messiah the prince enters Jerusalem being Palm Sunday, there will have elapsed seven sevens plus 62 more sevens. I can assure you the first 69 sevens are complete before Christ died on the cross. Scouts honor. Scouts honor. All good theologians agree with that, by the way. Therefore, a correct understanding of verse 26 in Daniel 9 would be, then after the 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Again, after the 69 sevens, the Messiah is crucified. All good theologians also agree that that refers to the crucifixion of Christ. How many units of seven then still remain as Jesus walked the Via Della Rosa to the cross? Only one week remains. Then next, in verse 27, we see Gabriel tells Daniel, and he will make a firm a mighty strong covenant with the many for one week. This covenant is the 70th seven of Daniel. And, and who ratifies this new and perfect covenant as God's answer to Daniel's prayer? Jesus declared, this is the new covenant in my blood. And therefore, the 70th seven, atonement for iniquity and everlasting righteousness, begins at the cross around the year 30 AD. That is the beginning of the 70th week. And then in the middle of the week, literally the Hebrew could be read in the midst of the week. Somewhere in the middle of this week, the 70th seven, we find in verse 27 that through the destruction of the... Jerusalem temple, that was in 70 AD, in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering because God no longer accepts such sacrifices. He only accepts the sacrifice of his son. And then we read, and, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That describes 
Titus and the Roman armies, which the previous verse describes as coming like a flood, came like a flood surrounding Jerusalem to destroy it in perfect fulfillment of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Not one stone will be left upon another. This is why Jesus makes reference to Daniel. Therefore, the 70th seven, everlasting righteousness, perfect forgiveness, is the new covenant that includes everyone, both Jew and Gentile, who are united to faith, uh, united in faith to the Messiah. So does this mean that the 70th seven indicates perfect forgiveness? and not a seven-year period. That is what Jesus told Peter. Well, how can that be? We might say because before the cross, the other 69 sevens appeared to represent you know, literal seven-year periods. Yeah. And before the cross, the Sabbath represented a literal 24-hour day. But nobody with good theology believes that anymore. The Sabbath was a mere shadow of what is to come, and the substance is in Christ. Before the cross, the Sabbath rest used to represent a literal day. But after the cross in Hebrews chapter 4, the Sabbath is redefined as our spiritual rest in the completed work of Christ. And Christians don't seem to have any problem with that. Likewise, before the cross, the 69 weeks of Daniel used to represent literal years, but through the new covenant, the 70th seven becomes redefined as our spiritual rest in Christ. An end to sin, atonement for iniquity, and everlasting righteousness. The old covenant Sabbath provided rest on seven the New Covenant provides rest 70 times 7. It's perfect rest in the forgiveness of Christ. And Jesus' New Covenant, it's the answer to Daniel's prayer. Fulfilling the promises that were made by Gabriel concerning the 77s. The answer to Daniel's prayer has never been an end times Antichrist. The 70th seven is also not a seven-year period of tribulation and wrath following a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. A seven-year tribulation and God's wrath in no way harmonizes with Gabriel's description of the 77s and in no way provides a fulfillment to the previous 69 weeks. And nowhere in Scripture are we permitted to reassign the 70th seven to a dubious covenant made with Israel by the Antichrist. Such a phony covenant would have needed to be identified as the 66 sixes, not the 77s. 666, six, six, get it? That would have had to have been a covenant by a fake Antichrist, or an Antichrist with a fake covenant. Not 77s. 77s does not describe the work of the Antichrist. Besides, you would think that if it were supposed to expect, if we were supposed to expect an end times Antichrist to make 
a fake covenant with Israel, you would at least expect to find that somewhere in the New Testament. However, never, not even once, is the word covenant associated with an antichrist. You can grab your exhaustive concordance with every word in the Bible in it and go through covenant. Study the word covenant, and it always refers in the New Testament to either the old covenant God made with Israel or the new covenant ratified by Christ. Never is the term covenant associated with an antichrist. The word covenant never appears in 1st or 2nd Thessalonians, nor do the terms Israel, nor does abomination, nor do you see the word desolation. They are not found anywhere in 2nd Thessalonians or 1st Thessalonians. They're not there. And therefore, it probably doesn't surprise you to hear the Apostle Paul never mentions Daniel in any of his writing ever, and most conspicuously absent from both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is another critical term that never appears even once in either of these two books. What is it? Seven. Never appears in 1st or 2nd Thessalonians. In the next couple weeks, we will learn that there surely exists an Antichrist, but a covenant made by him with Israel is entirely imposed upon 2 Thessalonians 2 by conjecture. Why do people do it? Why do they reassign the 70th 7 to a future Antichrist? Why do some propose that tribulation is something reserved exclusively for the future after the church is raptured when scripture repeatedly uses tribulation to describe the experience that many Christians suffer during the church age, including the Thessalonians in A.D. 50. Why is that? There are a couple of crucial reasons that uh, pre-tribulation rapture theorists make these assertions. And, and they're, you want to th you think on these as you consider where, where your thought theology lies. These are not small things. Number one, because when the strong covenant of Daniel 9 is correctly identified as the new covenant in Christ, those who insist upon a pre-tribulation rapture must then forfeit that covenant which they reassign to an end times antichrist. They have to say goodbye to it. Secondly, or number two, when the 70th seven is correctly recognized as divine forgiveness, those who insist on a pre-tribulation rapture lose access to their proposed seven-year tribulation. It's not future. Therefore, those who unite themselves to the theology as first developed by a man named John Nelson Darby around the year 1830, the pre-tribulation rapture theory. Now, John Nelson Darby uh, was the fun one who developed uh, that, uh, that eschatology. Um, He's called the father of the pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, those who unite themselves to his, his eschatology, uh, they will go to the mat. They will go down to the mat insisting Daniel 9 reveals a covenant made by an antichrist 
and a seven-year tribulation as, dancer, as answers to Daniel's prayer. They have to. They have to. Because if Daniel 9 supplies a prophecy of the Messiah making a new covenant, and if the 77s represent complete forgiveness, as Jesus told Peter, then a pre-tribulation rapture view of eschatology collapses. Folks, th this is what, Daniel 9, this is what forms the divide, sadly, between pre-trib and post-trib. This is the chapter in Scripture, Daniel chapter 9. They can't both be right. The covenant can't apply to both Christ and to some end times fella. The 77s can't imply eternal righteousness and also wrath and, and uh, anger by God. They're, they're incompatible. You cannot believe the 77s supply a prophecy of everlasting righteousness through the new covenant and believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. The, the ideas are completely incompatible. And at that point, you would have to return, if you were to take that view, to a post-tribulation rapture of the church. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, after the tribulation of those days, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Folks, th this is, isn't, it isn't intended as in any way an insult or a dig. It's simply being honest. A pre-tribulation rapture eschatology relies 100% on taking the promise made to Daniel of a new covenant in Christ and reassigning it to an antichrist. The disagreement surrounds who makes the strong covenant, who makes the firm covenant. It's Jesus. It is Jesus. And previous to John Nelson Darby, the predominant view of the church has always been that the 77s of Daniel point to Jesus' atonement for our iniquities perfect divine forgiveness and everlasting righteousness. And citing God's promise to Daniel, Jesus uses 77s in the same way when Peter came to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven you may, you may politely disagree. That, that is fine. That is fine. Um, but Daniel 9 supplies me with the highest confidence in a post-tribulation rapture. I have always, you who've been here a while uh, realizes, I have always affirmed my admiration for the teaching ability of John MacArthur and others like him. It would be much easier for me Believe me, believe me, it would be much easier for me in my studies and preaching to always remain lockstep with the MacArthur Study Bible. That would make my life easier. 
and the John MacArthur Bible study uh, commentary set, of course. But MacArthur, like us, the rest of us, he's just a man. He's just a man. And I'm personally convinced much of his eschatology is, is wrong. Humbly I say that. And I'm going to answer to God for what I teach this church. I take that very, very seriously. Um, as imperfect as a man as I remain, I'm attempting to be as faithful to Scripture as I possibly can and as honest as I can. And when I'm asked the order of end times events where we started today, the order of end times events, my response Today, as many of you have been here have seen, I have taken this redirection, this path over the last four years or so to a post-trib position. But when I'm asked the order of end times events, my response is with confidence. The church has always suffered tribulation and due to spiritual apostasy, evil men and imposters are going to proceed from bad to worse. We will begin to learn next week that the church is experiencing apostasy. The day of the Lord, that is Christ's return, it is imminent. That means it can happen at any moment. And it's going to arrive unexpectedly like a thief. Like the days of Noah and Lot, Jesus says that God's judgment will be sudden. Sudden and unescapable. Uh, Christ will appear and believers are going to be raptured on the day when God pours out the fire of his wrath on those left behind. Second Peter 3 assures that God will then create a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and where the wolf will lie down with the lamb. We who are in Christ will come back and inhabit it with him. And Christ himself will rule from his Davidic throne over God's kingdom on earth. And the preaching is going to get significantly better at that time. But scripture teaches a sudden appearance of Christ, followed by a swift punishment of all those who reject him. There exists no seven-year second chance. That is not the 70th seven. A seven-year second chance after the church is raptured. Scripture doesn't allow preachers the latitude to be preaching second chances. A second chance is a faulty conclusion people are reaching when they watch the movie series Left Behind. Folks, that movie series is complete fiction. Complete fiction. And it has deceived a lot of people into thinking they have more time than they actually do. Your chance to believe on Christ and re receive atonement for iniquities and eternal righteousness is today. It is today. It is by God's grace that he has left time for everyone here to accept Jesus Christ as Savior today. There is no promise of tomorrow. I will begin 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 next Sunday. Uh, and while realizing that the man of lawlessness is, is not making and breaking a covenant in that chapter, and that there isn't going to be a seven-year tribulation where a physical, physical temple has to be built, uh, knowing those things is really going to help our understanding 
of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is part of the reason I had to go uh, these last two weeks to Daniel 9 in order to get this, to get this squared away beforehand. Uh, and you'll at least understand, even if you don't agree, you'll at least understand uh, where I am coming from. I look forward to beginning that study or continuing the study next week. Let's pray.